As we, uh, as we come to the end of our study in the book of Daniel, I'm reminded of the following story. A family had twin boys whose only resemblance to each other was their looks. If one felt it was too hot, the other thought it was too cold. If one said the TV was too loud, the other thought it needed to be turned up. Opposite in every way, one was an eternal optimist, the other was doom and gloom pessimist. So just to see what would happen on the twins' birthday, their father loaded the pessimist's room with every imaginable toy and game that he could find. And uh, the optimist room, he loaded with horse manure. So he was curious to see what would take place. That night the father passed by the pessimist room. He found him sitting amid all of his new gifts and he was crying bitterly. His father was stunned, couldn't believe that he could find something to be pessimistic over everything that he had got. And he said, what, now what's your problem? He goes, you know, my friends are going to see all these things that I got and they're going to be jealous. He goes, I'm going to need new batteries on a regular basis. I've got to read all the directions and instructions before I can do anything with this stuff. And eventually this stuff's going to break anyway. There you go. His father walked away just scratching his head in amazement. Got by the second boy's room, opened the door, and there he found his son just jumping around with joy in the midst of all the horse manure. His father said, what's going on in here? He goes, there's got to be a pony under here somewhere. I love that. You know, when I first heard that story, I immediately thought of Daniel. Because this man was a man that was filled with optimism. And you've got to ask yourself, why was he so optimistic? I mean, you know, he was constantly surrounded by adverse circumstances. He was surrounded by people that were less than friendly. He was surrounded by some of the most ungodly people that ever walked the face of the earth. And yet Daniel was an optimist to the highest degree. You know, I believe it was because Daniel never lost sight of his God. He never lost sight of God's majesty, his glory, his power, his total control. The more time that Daniel spent with God, the more optimistic he was concerning the future. I think that's true, isn't it? The more time you spend with God, the more time you reflect upon his glory, his majesty, his power, his total control. And as we've gone through the book of Daniel, we see that we have a God who is in absolute control of everything. And the longer that we dwell on that, the more optimistic we become. And it's exciting to see that, because how could you be pessimistic in light of that? You know, think about it. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you the optimist, or are you the eternal pessimist? And I'll guarantee you that it has a lot to do with your relationship to God. Those who are optimistic find themselves spending time consistently in the Word of God. Studying the Bible, seeing what God has to say about life and circumstances and His plans and His purpose for man. Those who are optimistic spend time alone, quietly with God, to be still and to know that He's God, to hear that quiet voice that can only speak in those moments in time when nobody else is around and we're not involved in the hustle bustle of life. Not to carve out, well here God, I'll give you two minutes and now i got to go, i got stuff to do. But people that continually and consistently find that they've got time because they'll make time. The problem that we have with time is that we'll never find time. You really have to make it. I was thinking about that a few weeks back. It was, I think it was, um, uh, what was it? Probably New Year's weekend. And I was challenged by the fact that Daniel continually found a way to make time to spend time with God. Three times a day, the Bible says, as we've gone through the study, that Daniel went into the upper room of his room and he, and he prayed. And he spent time alone with God. 
Now all of us are so busy, we've got a million things going on and it's amazing how often it is that the time that we want to spend with God is a time that, you know what, a million other things come up. It's kind of like trying to get somebody to come to church with you or trying to even get yourself out of bed to come to church. I mean, there are times where it's like, you know, oh, it's just, it's just so inconvenient. It's always inconvenient to spend time with God because that's the last place that our enemy wants us to spend time. Because when we spend time with God, we see clearly God's picture. We see the plan. We see the purpose. We see God so clearly that it, that, that it frightens those around us who don't want us to see that. And I was thinking, it was, it was New Year's weekend. And I was thinking how ironic it was. Because, now, I don't know. I, I don't know if you know this or not. But I, but I'm, I, I like sports. And... Um, I, I want to admit that to you. I enjoy sports. Uh, you know, been involved all my life. I love sports, and it's amazing how I can find time to watch a sporting event. And that was the weekend that. If, now, for those of you who don't know, New Year's weekend, there's probably 47 football, college bowl games on. And 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 that weekend, I cut back. I only watched 44, I think. Because, because God challenged me. It's like, Chuck, you know, you have time to watch 16 hours straight of college football. You think you can give me like, you know, 20 minutes or 30 minutes? We can spend some time together. i got some things I need to talk to you about. Isn't that interesting? We can always find time to do things that we think are a priority. Now, what's fascinating about that is, if you ask me today, I, I, can, I can remember maybe one or two games and who won. And as super as the Super Bowl is, and as great a game as it is, and I love football, and I, I love the Super Bowl. But what's so interesting about it is how super can it be that we're up to Super Bowl 33? If it was so super, they would have played one really good one and said, that's it, man. I mean, we can't go on from here. This is it. This is as good as it gets. And we try to top it the next time. And so the point is, as I'm looking at this, I'm realizing that, you know what, Daniel had his priorities straight. He found time to spend alone with God. And because of that, he knew there was a pony in there somewhere. And it's fascinating as we look at that. Daniel understood that God was in control. He put his confidence, he put his trust in God. He realized that God was faithful, that even when we're faithless, God is faithful. He realized that God could do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that he could ever ask or think of God. He knew that God would be a source of strength and that Daniel is given this vision that we have. It's the time of the end in Daniel chapter 12. We're going to take a look at this as we conclude this study in the book of Daniel. But he knew that he could trust God and that God would be his source of strength as he saw what lay ahead and some of the problems that were going to be dealt with as far as the nation of Israel was concerned. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. We'll take a look at this and this will be our concluding message in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 12, if you'll recall, this is an ongoing vision that begins in Daniel chapter 10 and it goes through the end of the book. Chapter 12 not only concludes the book of Daniel, but it also, uh, this vision which began in chapter 10 is concluded in this particular chapter as well. Daniel chapter 12, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, Now at that time, speaking of the time of the end, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. 
Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and a half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Now as for me, I heard but I didn't understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolations is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335th day. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. As I mentioned, this particular vision, if you've got your Bible still open, turn back to Daniel chapter 10. And in verse 14, we're told what the purpose of this vision is, and it regards specifically in verse 14, it says, Now I've come to give you understanding. Remember that God had sent an angel to Daniel to give an understanding as far as the word of God is concerned. Today, God doesn't send angels to explain the Bible. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that in the previous days, that's how God spoke to men. That was one of the many ways that he spoke. But today, he speaks to us in, in, through his son. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. The final revelation of God to man is through Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gives us everything that we need. The beginning is the book of Genesis. The book of Revelation tells us how everything's going to turn out. And everything in between is everything that God gives us that we need to live a life that's pleasing to God and also to, to help us to understand how to enter into a relationship with God first and then to live a life that's pleasing to God and what we have to look forward to. We do not need angels to come and explain anything to us anymore. God has given us the completed work of, his, of the Bible. We've got everything that we need. And as we put our faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God comes to lead us into all truth, that He lives within us and He guides us into all truth. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And He, and he will explain to us the things that we struggle with as far as the things of God are concerned. We do not need an angel or angels any longer to explain the mind of God. But at this particular time, that's how God chose to explain and give understanding to His message. So he gives Daniel this vision or this dream, and Daniel has this dream, and the vision specifically has to do with what's going to happen, as we've noticed here in verse 14. I've come to give you an understanding so that you'll understand completely and very clearly. One of the biggest problems that we have today in our culture is we do not have a clear understanding of God and the things of God. We do not have a clear understanding of who God is, what He's all about, what His plan is for man, and there's much confusion in our world today and everybody has their own opinion and their own philosophies. But God wants every human being to know beyond a shadow of a doubt and without any question in your heart and my heart where we stand with God and what we have to look forward to in the future. And He's going to outline some of those truths as we go through here. He says, I've come that you have understanding of what will happen to your people, specifically... To your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. As we look at this, there's three things that we have to keep in mind to understand this vision that God has given to Daniel. The first thing is this. Specifically, what's being referred to is the nation of Israel. Daniel was a Jew. God says that he sent this vision to Daniel. The angel came to give him an understanding of what is in store for the nation of Israel or for Jewish people in the, in the future. Number one, this particularly 
relates to, uh, to the Jewish community, it relates to Jews, it relates to the nation of Israel. Number two, as he says, and, and of when that will happen in the latter days. Specifically, we've already learned, he's talking about the end of time, or, or, or of time as we will know it, the last seven years, if you recall, of Daniel chapter 9, we're building on what we've learned so far. Daniel chapter 9, we know there's 69 weeks have passed, or 69 sets of seven, or there's one seven-year period of time that's left that will take place in the future. Everything that we studied so far is in the past. There's one seven-year period of time that is yet even in our future today and what and what the angel says to Daniel is that and these days are yet in the future or far into the future now we know because we've got hindsight working for us that this has been 2500 years since 536 BC when Daniel had this vision and we've already talked about the reliability of God's word that everything that God said has come true as he said that it would and so it becomes very reliable and trustworthy for information many of us struggle and we know people that say I don't believe the Bible and the first thing I ask him is how much time have you read it how much time have you spent studying it or reading it or understanding it uh, well none but what I've heard about it I don't believe well, how stupid are you? I mean, I, I know that's not politically correct, but I don't really care because I'm not either. But, I mean, think about it. If you're going to say that I don't believe something, then at least do your homework so that at least you understand why you don't believe it, and then we can discuss why you don't believe. Why don't you believe the Bible's credible? Well, because maybe somebody that you talked to that believed in the Bible was an idiot. Therefore, you've kind of carried that through to the fact the Bible must be foolish because the only person you've ever met that believed in the Bible tended to be kind of an idiot. But you can't discount the fact that the Bible is foolish and not trustworthy because the person that you talk to may not have been the sharpest tack in the box. So, you know, don't discount the Bible. That's not God's fault that this person may not be, you know, the sharp tack. So what we need to do is we need to become people who are sharp tacks in the box in whatever, wherever we find ourselves. We know what we believe. We know why we believe it. And then we can, we can share that with people around us in a credible way that they will, they will at least talk to us about it and go, man, you know what? I didn't think I believed in the Bible, but man, that guy understands the Bible or that gal understands what she believes and why she believes it and she's far ahead of me. You know what? I think I'm going to listen a little more. But we need to know what we believe, don't we? Usually, all we're asked is one question and then we feel stupid, so we go, a debate, debate. Now, that's not a big selling point for the credibility of the Bible. That line will not get you too far in a conversation with somebody that really wants to know what God has to say about life. That doesn't work. And, and, and this is even a weaker one. Well, uh, let me go ask uh, my pastor. Or, let me, hey, you know what? If you don't know, say, let me dig into it and find out and then come back we'll talk about it. But you know what? You, you, you know, you're responsible to know what you believe. I don't know if you understand that or not, but we all are. We're responsible to know what we believe and why we believe it, and then we can share it with people around us in a credible manner. So Daniel understood why he believed God, he understood what he believed, and he knew why he believed it. But this is for that period of time that's yet to come. So keep this in focus, um, is that this was going to happen in days yet into the future. We're 2,500 years into the future, and some of these things have not occurred yet. They will occur in the future. That which God said would occur in in the future at the time that he said it has already occurred in the past, and he's credible and he's reliable. Therefore, the only thing that's left is a seven year period of time. If everything else that God said was going to happen happened exactly as it is, the chances are real good that, you know what, there's only five percent left that he hasn't revealed it's going to happen because 95 percent of everything they said already did 
So we look at it and go, okay, God, what do you have to say about this time in the future? And we're going to see at least four things that he wants to mention. Uh, he wants us to understand. He certainly wanted Daniel to understand. And the first thing that we come to is that in verse, go back to Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 1. This is what he says will take place. And remember, Daniel specifically had his own people in mind when he asked, okay, what do we have to look forward to? The first thing that he says is, well, you know what? You can look forward to the rescue of, of your people. Daniel, you can look forward to the fact that God, one day in the future, will do as He promised to do, and He will deliver your people as He promised. I think we need to understand that in 586 B.C., the Babylonians marched into Jerusalem, totally destroying everything that was in sight, taking uh, multitudes of people into captivity, including Daniel. That's how we started this whole series in Daniel chapter 1. Took them into captivity, and the Babylonians were very cruel and vicious people concerning as far as God's people were concerned. And if you remember, in Daniel chapter 2, God had given a succession of nations that would arise. Babylon fell, the Medes and the Persians took over, and the Persians were, were, were not as cruel as the Babylonians were because under Persia, God moved in the heart of Cyrus the Great who allowed the Jewish people to go back to their land after the 70 years of judgment were up. So the 70 years of judgment were up, Daniel's people were allowed to go back to their home country. Uh, not many of them took up the offer to go back because they had gotten used to living in Babylon, they had gotten used to Babylonian thinking and culture and language and the ways that Babylonians did things and they didn't want to go back and rebuild uh, Jerusalem they didn't want to go back and be part of what God's plan was not all of them, a remnant went back but if you recall what happened at that point is they go back to their home country and then all of a sudden they're stuck between the Seleucids who are on the north and the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south which are the Egyptians so you've got the Syrians in the north the Egyptians in the south uh, Israel is in the middle uh, the Jewish people are in the middle Jerusalem's in between that and these people are marching back and forth and, and they're just going after each other and they're fighting they're killing they're destroying each other and in the, in the meantime here is Jerusalem in the middle and all of God's people are stuck in the middle and they're just getting tramped upon throughout this whole process and just when they think it couldn't get any worse, out of the Syrian dynasty or the Seleucids comes Antiochus Epiphanes IV, if you recall. Now he marches into Jerusalem, he abolishes the sacrifices to God, he abolishes the whole uh, uh, system of Judaism, he, he destroys the word of God, he burns the Torah, he burns the word of God, he stops everything that's going on, and in one day literally slaughters hundreds of thousands of Jews who had, who had gone back to rebuild their country, and he was an absolute nightmare. Uh, the Bible says in history records the fact he recorded his name as Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning that God, he was God in the flesh, and he was going to be a foreshadow of this man who's coming yet in the future. This guy was horrendous. He was as cruel as they came. And the people nicknamed him not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimenes. One change in a Greek letter, and it changed his name from God in the flesh to madman. And they called him, this guy was a looney tune. He was a madman. He was crazy. And, and they thought it couldn't get any worse, and it did get worse. And even after that, it got worse. Because after, after the Persians and then the Greeks came on board, and then the next thing we know, the Romans came on board, and the Jewish people have been subjected to the time of the Gentiles ever since then. And they thought it couldn't get any worse. And you know what? And it continued to get worse. And then even into our own history, when we look back at the times of Hitler in Germany, and the fact that he personally led the slaughter of six million Jews, we look at that and say, how much worse could it get? It can't get any worse than that. And you know what God says? It's going to get worse. Six million Jews were slaughtered under Hitler's regime, and the Bible says that it's going to get worse for the nation of Israel. Now, you need to have the big picture in mind when God starts sharing that kind of information with you to continue to be an optimist. 
because that's exactly what's going to take place. Nevertheless, at the end of all of that, and here's the big picture, as you're wading through the horse manure of our life, God says, never lose sight of the big picture. Because he says, and he goes on and says, but you know what? But at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book of life, will be delivered. At the end of that time, God will fulfill His promises and those who believe and trust in Him and put their faith in Messiah or Jesus Christ, they will be delivered and rescued by God. That's the promise of God. Now, God comforts Daniel by telling him, first of all, He says, Hey, Daniel, I want to let you know, at that time, at the end of that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, Michael is an archangel. He, in fact, he's the only archangel that's mentioned in the Bible. The archangel Michael, he's related to the church in the way that when Jesus comes for the, for the church, it says, And at the sound of the trumpet or the shout of the archangel that the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Michael specifically is given responsibility by God to stand up at that time and defend the people of God as God has chosen. And at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, the archangel, he will arise and he will do as God has destined for him to do. Ultimately, we know in Revelation 12 that Michael will be responsible for casting Satan and his demons out of the presence of God in heaven. And that will be Michael who is, moved, who is moved by God to do exactly as God says. At that time, he will rise, he will protect his people. And there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Can you imagine everything that they've gone through? Jesus called this period of time the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. That there is a period of time yet coming in the future for the nation of Israel specifically, that will be a time of distress and great trouble. In fact, the Bible calls it, Jeremiah 30, calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. A time specifically referring to the nation of Israel. But not only just to the nation of Israel, but to all who will be on the face of the earth at that particular time. And it's interesting as we go through this, that yet as we look at this, God will still deliver His people. Now the question is, how, why and how will God deliver His people? It says, at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Everyone who's found, his name is found written in the book. We're going to take a look at that as we go through it. The bottom line is this. How, how would Israel be delivered or rescued from this time of great trouble that's coming? Very simply, by putting their faith and their hope and their trust in God and in Him alone. And really, that's the answer to our relationship with God. There's a point in every one of our lives where we cannot, we cannot rely upon ourselves. We cannot rely upon our own strength. We can't rely upon how good we are or think we are. We can't rely upon how much good things that we do. We can't rely upon how much money we make. We can't rely upon how much money is in our bank account, what kind of house we live in, what kind of equity we have, what kind of uh, stocks that we've got in our portfolio. There's a time where we can't rely on anything. We certainly can't rely upon our looks. You know, at one point in our life we could have, but that uh, we see we have to change that philosophy as time goes on. So we can't rely on that any longer. You know, we just can't rely on all the things that we try to rely on. There's a point where we have to rely totally on God. That we put our faith and our trust and our hope in what He says as far as what will deliver us from the wrath that's to come. And that's exactly what we're looking at here because there's going to be a remnant of people, specifically Jews that we're talking about, who will totally put their faith and trust and hope in the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And you know what, folks? That's exactly how God delivers us also from the wrath that's to come. The judgment of God. Jesus said, I haven't come to judge the world, I've come to save it. That whoever believes in me would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone to rescue them from the judgment that's to come, the Bible says at that time our name is written in the book of life. And that's a great truth that we need to recognize and understand, which leads us to the next point that he says, and, and, this is, and I love this too because in uh, verse 2 we read this, the resurrection of people are going to take place. In Revelation chapter, uh, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, look at it says, multitudes who sleep in the dust, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There are two things that we're going to notice in verses 2 and 3. The first one is this. It's important for us to understand there's a time coming in the future where there will be a separation of those who are resurrected. I don't know if you understand this or not, but I want to make it as clear as possible. The Bible clearly teaches that there are only two destinies for all of mankind. That there are only two destinies. Only two places. And uh, where, we, we, where we go uh, will determine uh, the quality of life that's spent there. But the bottom line is this, that when we die, we do not die. Our bodies die, but our spirit, our soul, continues to live forever. And it's a matter of where we end up, and it's determined basically, as you look and what, see what God has to say, is this. There's two destinies for all of mankind. One is there's everlasting life, and others will be everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. Everlasting life or disgrace, everlasting life or shame and contempt, everlasting life or everlasting torment. Those are the only two destinies for all of mankind. There's no place that's found anywhere that says there's any other options available to us. That's it. Everlasting life or everlasting contempt. We will all live forever. It's just a question of where we will all live forever. And that's specifically what God is trying to explain here as he explains to Daniel. We need to look at this because there's some confusion as to the resurrection. And uh, what we need to recognize are two things. Number one, and I'll give you, we've got a new series that's starting next week that's going to talk a, a lot more in depth or greater detail about some of these events that are coming in the future. But for now, the bottom line is this. For those who are what the Bible calls in Christ, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away, all things become new. There's a point in life where every person has to decide, will you or do you believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, who came to this earth, as the Bible teaches, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, that he went to the cross and he shed his blood specifically for you, so that you would not be judged by God for the fact that you are, according to God, guilty before God. That there are none righteous, no, not one, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible very clearly says that God's standard is perfection. If you want to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. I don't know anybody in the world who has ever told me yet that I'm perfect. And if you say that you're perfect, all the people around you have a good argument that will de- decide real quickly that you're not. And their argument is simply this. The guy thinks he's perfect. That's their indictment and that's their judgment. I mean, bottom line is you may think you're perfect, but everybody around you knows that you're not. And the fact that you're so prideful and arrogant that you would think that you're perfect indicates that you're not. So the bottom line of what everything that God has to say is this. We're all guilty before God. We're all born with a sin defect. As Adam sinned, so sin entered the world. And when sin came forth, it brought forth spiritual death. And we are born spiritually dead. That's what the Bible teaches. Very simple and very clearly. Now, there's a point where every one of us have to recognize that, you know what? I can't get to heaven on my own. The only way, according to the Bible, I can get there is by believing in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. 
The Bible says if you do that, you become a child of God, that you are forgiven before God, that there is no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ. And the term of in Christ is a term that's found from the time of Pentecost forward. It's this period of time where we're in between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. It's this great, wonderful age of grace where God extends His invitation to anyone who would believe. Whosoever would believe in Him. Whosoever is open to anybody. Anybody and everybody. Doesn't matter what background you have. Doesn't matter what skin color you have. Doesn't matter how much money or no money. Doesn't matter what kind of job. Whosoever will believe will have everlasting life. Alright? So, for those who believe in Jesus Christ and are in now in Christ, the Bible says this. If you die today and you're in Christ, that you will be absent from your body and you'll be present with the Lord. You are guaranteed an express trip straight into the presence of God. No pass and go, no stopping in purgatory, limbo, other stops along the way. There is no stops on the way to heaven. You're going straight from earth, straight to heaven. Your life continues, but it continues not here any longer, but it continues there. The only thing you leave behind is your body, and that's what we all have to deal with when you check out. You know, what do you want to do with it? Do we want to burn it? Do we want to go put it in a casket? Do we want to get a cheap one? He'd really like this nice one. Hey, don't worry what he'd really like because he ain't here anyway. He's not enjoying it. Um, you know, it's always, you know, it's like, hey, he's in heaven. He's in the presence of God. I don't think he's getting hung up on what kind of casket that corpse is laying in. Don't worry about it. You know, but we get hung up on stupid things. He's in the presence of God. If he's in Christ, he's in the presence of God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, here's an interesting point. For those who don't die before this event takes place, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, concerning the dead, my brother, I don't want you to be uninformed, but those who are dead, you know, have died, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up together with Him in the air when Jesus comes to take God's people, the church, back to heaven with Him. If we're not dead when He comes, we won't have to go through that process, but we'll be transformed, we'll be translated, we'll be taken in an instant in time. And that's a wonderful truth. Now, as we're looking at this whole idea of resurrection, that's what takes place now. Now, there's also a resurrection that's going to take place, and that's the resurrection that Daniel's talking about. And I want you to understand this because the Jewish people understood the concept of resurrection. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph, who lived his life in Egypt, made his family promise him this. Listen to me. When I die, you promise me that you'll carry my bones back to our homeland, back to Israel. Because I want to be buried there. Why do I want to be buried there? Because when Jesus Christ or the Messiah comes and takes his stand here on earth and I'm raised from the dead, I want to be exactly where I need to be at the time that this resurrection takes place. Turn with me to Job chapter 19. Job, back a few books. Job chapter 19. Notice what Job has to say. Job 19, he says in verse 25, this is a great, great, great passage, great verse. Memorize it, mark it, underline it, do whatever you have to do because this is, this is awesome. He says, Job says, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer or my Savior lives. Job 19, 25. As for me, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, all the confidence in the world, I am absolutely 100% certain of this, that my Savior lives. And at the last, at the last what? At the last of the days that we're talking about in the book of Daniel. At those last days, at that last period of time, at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. That Jesus Christ will come and establish his kingdom here on earth. Daniel chapter 2 told us that there is a kingdom that's coming, that comes from heaven, that will be established forever and ever and blend into eternity. 
And Job says this, As for me, I know my Savior lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon this earth. And he says, Even after my skin is destroyed, notice, yet from my flesh I will see God, and whom my eyes shall see and not another, and my heart faints within me. Man, it's just the thought of that. He goes, even though my body's going to be dust and dirt and falling apart in the ground and my spirit is going to be present with God, there's a day coming where God will raise that bones and that dust just like he did the first time he created man. You know, the Bible says that remember, man, that you're a dust and unto dust you shall return. That God just took common dirt and dust and he created man and he breathed life into that dirt and dust. So when that dirt and dust returns to dirt and dust, it's not that big a deal for God to raise it back up again. He's already did it once. He can do it again. It's not that big a deal. And he's saying that I know when Jesus takes a stand here on earth that that day will come where I will raise, be raised from the dead and through a resurrected body I will see him through my eyes. The whole idea of resurrection continues in John chapter 11. Maybe some of you remember the story of Lazarus who had died. Turn with me to uh, John chapter 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And notice this dialogue that took place. Lazarus had already died in John chapter 11. Look at verse 20. Lazarus had died. Martha, his sister, and Mary was his other sister. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. It says, Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Because she understood that he had the power to keep people alive. He had already demonstrated that by raising others from the dead. He had the power over infirmity. He had the power over nature. He had the power of God. He could do whatever it was that he wanted to do. And she said, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He says, she said, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her this, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he got personal with her and said, do you believe this? He said that I am the resurrection. I am your only hope. He says later in John 14, I am the way to heaven and there's no other way to get there but through me. Do you believe that I am who I claim to be? The only way to get to heaven is through faith and trust in me. By grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so none of us could ever boast. Now he gets very personal and it's really a personal question and it's a question that every person here that's listening to my voice has to address at some time in their life. And that is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. He is asking you and he's asking you this. Do you believe this truth? That I'm the only way to get to heaven. She said this. Yes, Lord, I have believed it. I had already come to that decision already in my life. At some point in the past, she had already come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the promised one of God. She says, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. What a great moment in time as he confronted her on the truth of his divinity. That he was Messiah, that he was Savior. Ask yourself this question. It's a very personal question and it has nothing to do with anybody around you or anything to do with anybody but you and God. And that's this. Have you come to a point in your life? You may have come to a point where you came to church. You may have come to a point where you think, oh, I want to check into this. 
You may have come to a point where, you know, I'm going to read my Bible, or I'm going to start, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to change because, you know, I'm, I'm making such a mess of my life. You may have come to all kind of conclusions in your life, but the only thing that's going to separate you from everlasting life and everlasting shame and contempt is the answer that you give to the question, and that is this, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and He is the only remedy that you have that will keep you from going to hell for eternity? Do you believe that? He asked Peter the same thing, didn't he? If you remember in Matthew chapter 16, he said, Who do people say that I am? And they had all kinds of answers, but he said, You know what? I don't really care now what everybody's saying about me. Peter, let me ask you something. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said the same thing. He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Savior of the world. There's no other way to get to heaven but through you. And we're putting all our faith and trust and confidence in you. Is that where you've come to in your life? If not, I'm going to tell you very clearly, and that's this. Whosoever would believe in Him would not perish. Whosoever does not believe in Him will perish. Whosoever will believe in Him will spend an eternity in the presence of God, everlasting life. Whosoever does not believe in Him will spend an eternity away from the presence of God in a place that's ultimately called, as we'll see in our next series, the lake of fire. We call it hell today, but hell will be cast into the lake of fire where there will be eternal torment forever and ever and ever. And the only thing that keeps you from going to one place or the other is who you say that Jesus Christ is. As we look at this, the resurrection of people will take place. You know what's fascinating as we take a look? Is he also says this. If you've got your Bibles, I don't have it up here on the overhead. But look at Daniel chapter 12 again and look at verse 3. Daniel 12, verse 3, we read this. And those who have insight, insight comes from what? From a clear understanding of the Word of God. Insight comes from God. Insight comes from the Spirit of God. Before I, was a, before I put my faith and trust in Christ, I tried to read the Bible, and I read it and went, man, I don't understand any of this. None of this makes sense to me. Maybe you've been there. Have you ever been there? Hey, I hear you. You know, you're reading through it going, I don't understand this. I don't get it. I, you know, and, and I went to church with people, and I still didn't get it. But there was a point where it's like, you know what? None of that makes any difference. What matters is this. Do you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? The day that I said yes to God and believed in Jesus Christ was the day the Bible says that I was made a new creature. The Spirit of God lives in us who believe in Christ. And He's given to us as a down payment that God's promises of the future will be exactly as He says. And as the Spirit of God lives within us, the Bible says He guides us into all truth. That Now we have insight into the mind of God. Why? Because who can understand the mind of God but the Spirit of God? God's Spirit understands the mind of God because He is God. And so now we understand the things of God. Who has insight? Those who know God and have trusted in Christ. Notice what it says. And all those who have insight will what? Will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Let me just share something with you that's going to take place. Specifically concerning the nation of Israel, and that's this. There's going to be a time coming, and though it's a seven-year period of time, this time of great distress like they've never seen in the history of their nation, there will be a time where there will be those who are walking the face of the earth who will shine brightly as the stars of heaven because they are to shine just like Christ says that our light should shine here on earth. That we're to be light and we're to be salt. And they will be light in darkness and the darkness will hate the light and try to extinguish it. Just like when I was a kid and I used to go to parties and all the lights were out because people were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. And you walk in a room not knowing what's going on and you flip the light switch on and they go, Hey, shut the light out! Hey, dude, what are you doing, man? Well, we didn't talk like that, but... 
<laughs> but they do today, so maybe some of you can relate. We said other things that I, that I can't say, so that's as close as I can get. But it was like, hey, shut the light out, would you? Why? Because the light exposed the deeds that were being done, and the darkness loved the evil, and they want to extinguish the light. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the light who came into the world. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't understand the light. They didn't like the light. They didn't want the light. They didn't want the light, what the light uh, stood for. And so what did they do? They thought, we have to kill it and extinguish the light. So they sent Christ to the cross to kill the light because he was convicting as to their guilt before God. The Bible says that, you know what, that we, as God's people, are to be a light here on this earth. I want to ask you a question. How's your light shining? Dimly. Or brightly, those are the two choices. Or not at all. Question is, when people see you, man, I mean, what do they see? When people see you at work, or people in your family see you, or people see you at your job, or, or people around you see you, what do they see? Do they see a light that's shining brightly in the darkness? The darkness doesn't comprehend it and understand it, but they want to know. See, we're to be like lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, Philippians 2 says. How's your light shining? For many of us, the people around us don't even know that there's even a flicker of a candle in there somewhere. And that's the way it was with some of the people that I hung out with that said, Hey, I'm a Christian. Say, well, shoot, then I must be one too because we're all doing the same stuff. See, there, was a, there wasn't any difference. But those who are in Christ, they're new creatures. There's a new way of living. We begin to live to please God instead of ourselves. There has to be a change. One of, the, one of the greatest heresies today in our culture is that you can believe in Jesus Christ and you can continue to live any way that you want because somehow or another we're saved by grace. And the Bible says very clearly that if you come to know God by believing in Jesus Christ, that there'll be a radical change that takes place in your heart and takes place in your life and there has to be evidence of it. Otherwise, you're just deceiving yourself that you said some words or you prayed a prayer or you signed a card and those works are no more works of righteousness than going to church or reading your Bible or giving money to the poor or stopping to drink or smoke or whatever it is that we think that's going to keep us from God. You know what? Only a sincere and broken heart, God will not despise. A person, who, a person who's sincere before God, saying, Lord, I can't do it. I give up. I'm not, I, I can't get there on my own. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And for that person that's sincere before God, that is truly born again according to the God's definition, you cannot help but see a life change. Because we live to please ourselves before we come to know Christ. We live to please God after we've come to know Him. There's got to be a difference. And he's saying here that, you know what, there is a difference. Now, we're going to go quickly on these other things because we'll touch base with them on this new series that we're going to start next week. But the revelation of the events is to be sealed. And basically what we have taken place here, he says, but you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. He's not saying hide it so that nobody knows about it because for 2,500 years, we've all been reading and studying and scrutinizing the book of Daniel, the scroll of Daniel. We've looked at it. We found parchment samples in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The book of Daniel, the, the closest manuscript evidence goes back to 200 B.C., which is very close to the time it was actually written, and that's another reason that it's credible and reliable. So the closer something is to the original document or manuscript, the more credibility that it has. So he's saying that you close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. He's not saying conceal it. He's saying close it up, seal it, protect it, because people are going to want to look at this because it's the Word of God. He says, many will go here and there to increase knowledge. That there's going to be a time coming where people are going to be searching for knowledge, searching for information. And that's exactly what we find here today, isn't it? We live in an age today where all of these things are taking place. We've got Y2K, the turn of the millennium, all this stuff that's happening. We've got individuals who are struggling with their own personal destiny. They may have terminal cancer. They may have some disease. They may have a family member who's dying. Everybody's asking the question, hey, what do we have to look forward to? 
and the information's available. The Word of God is available. We can turn to God's Word and He tells us exactly what we have to look forward to. It's a matter of whether we trust and believe what He has to say. But he says that then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others. One on this bank of the river, one on the other. We know there are two angels, one standing on one side, one standing on the other side. One of them said to the man who was clothed in linen, which we've already talked about in Daniel chapter 10, and that was the post-incarnate Jesus Christ. So he asked Christ himself, when is all this going to take place? One of them said, hey, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever and ever. I love that. I swear to you that what I'm about to tell you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, when God swears, He doesn't have to swear upon anybody else. He's the highest authority that there is. I swear to tell you the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me, me. God doesn't lie. He's not like man. He doesn't lie. He doesn't change His mind. What God is saying here is going to happen exactly as He says. He says, how long will it be? The man said... And as we go through, he says, And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be a time, times and a half, which is one year, another year, a half a year, actually one year, then two years, and a half of a year, which is one plus two is three, and a half is three and a half years. So he's saying it's going to be a three and a half year period of time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken and all these things have been completed. What's interesting is he's warning him, saying, Daniel, there's going to be a three and a half year period of time in this future seven years. And in that three and a half year period of time, when it's over, then the time of the end will come. We'll talk about that when we get into what is the tribulation, what is the seven years, we'll get into all of that. He says, and then their power will finally be broken. You know what God always warned the nation of Israel from the very beginning? He said this to them, listen, don't put your trust and your faith in yourself. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he warned them and said, you know what, I'm going to give you a land that you haven't done a thing to deserve and it's all going to be ready for you. Cities are going to be built, vineyards are going to be there, I'm going to go ahead and move you in there and I'm warning you this, don't get too cocky and don't get too arrogant that you think that you deserved it and that you've done it with your own power and your own strength. Then he went on and said this, don't put your faith and trust in military weapons. Don't put your faith and trust in, in, in all the horses and the chariots and in your strength. Don't count your numbers. Don't put your faith and trust in the fact that we've got 50,000 of us and they've only got 3,000 of them, so we're going to go and kick their butts. He said, don't put your faith and trust in any of that. He has always from the beginning said this, you put your faith and trust in me and in me alone. And what? And I will deliver you. There's going to be a period of time in their future where finally they will fall on their knees before God and say, God, you know what? This is way bigger than us and we can't do it anymore. We're counting our Scud missiles. We're counting all our land-to-air missiles. We're counting all our surface missiles. We're counting all our ships and we're counting all... We're counting everything and you know what? And we're adding it up and it ain't coming close to what we need. And they're going to throw up their hands like all of us should at some point in our life and say, Lord, this isn't about me anymore. This is about trusting and putting my faith and trust in you. And that's what they're going to do. He says, I heard all this, but you know what? I didn't understand it. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? And he said, you know what, Daniel, go your way because the words are closed up and sealed until the end of time. You know, Daniel was at a huge disadvantage. And you know what, and even today we are to some degree because we're not really sure what all the details are of the future. And as we get into this next series that we're doing, you're going to find out, you know what, there's still going to be a lot of unanswered questions. But the bottom line is this, that God gives us what we need to know on a need-to-know basis. And the rest of the stuff we don't really need to know because most of us have trouble dealing with what He already tells us and we do understand. 
It's like, you know, I've got a tough enough time just dealing with the stuff that I understand, yet alone the things that I don't understand. And what's interesting about it is most of us spend more time trying to understand the things that we don't understand than being obedient and dealing, dealing with the things we do understand. Do you understand? Alright, we're done. All the results are going to happen quickly. It says, many will be purified, made spotless and refined. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined. These great principles prevail from Daniel's day into the future, and that's this. Many shall be purified. refers to those who have come to Christ. Though our sins are as scarlet, He will make them white as snow. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That they will be purified. They will be made spotless before God. Though our sins are as scarlet, they'll be made white as snow. Yet they were as red as crimson, He'll make them white as wool. That principle and that, that truth still applies. He says that they will be made spotless, they'll be refined. What's interesting is that not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His rich mercy do we find forgiveness. Titus chapter 3. It says spotless and will be refined. Notice though, but the wicked, there's the contrast. Those who are made right before God, how are we made right? We're made right by the righteousness of Christ and Him alone. By the mercy of God. By simply trusting and believing in Him. But those who refuse to do that, God calls them wicked. And they'll continue to be wicked. And none of the wicked will understand. They just won't get it. They won't be able to understand it. And in fact, in those days, God says He will send forth a deluding spirit so that they can't understand the things of God. Do you realize there's a point in every one of our lives where God continues in His mercy to try to reach us with forgiveness and the love that's found in Christ? And yet as we continue to reject Him, reject Him, reject Him, there's a point where, you know what, that some, there's, a, there's a point that God says that you may get to the point where you'll no longer understand what it is that God has to offer. You cannot continue to reject the love and forgiveness of God without paying a price at some point in your life. The Bible says that those who go to their grave rejecting Jesus Christ, He says that they will arise one day at the end of this millennium period of time where Christ rules on the earth, they will arise one day to eternal judgment. Revelation chapter 20. He says, but those who are wise will understand. Here's the difference. Are you a wicked person? Or are you a wise person? How do you know? You're a wise person if you've believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. You're a wicked person if you reject that gospel. That's God's definition of wise and wicked. The world has all kind, doesn't it? You're wicked if you do this, 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 and this, and you're good if you do this, 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 and this. Hey, you know what? Here's God's definition. A wise person puts their faith and trust in God and believes in Jesus Christ. A wicked person rejects Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he has to offer. And that's the difference between the two. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there'll be 1,290 days. Now, for some of you who are sharp and understand what's going on, we know that three and a half years is only 1,260 days. So now there's a 30-day period of time that we don't have any account for, which we're going to talk about in our next series. Then it goes on. It says, Blessed is the one who waits and reaches uh, the end of the 1,335 days. Now, that throws us off, too, because that's a math problem. And there's 45 more days that we're looking at that goes beyond the 1,260 days. And if you want to understand that and know what God has to say, you got to come back again. This is so great. I love this. But as for you, go your way till the end. He's speaking to Daniel, and this is what we'll close on. He says, as for you, go your way till the end, and you will rest. It means you're going to die. He says, and at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. There's the pony. He says, you know, there's a whole bunch of manure in the future for the nation of Israel. And for some of us, there's a whole bunch of manure in our future, too. But you know what? But the pony underneath all of it is the promises of God that He will deliver those who trust in Jesus Christ. 
That's the big picture. As we conclude our study in the book of Daniel, I realized how difficult it would be to try to sum up everything that we've learned in the past 32 weeks. And uh, this is what God's impressed upon me, and this is what I share with you in closing, and that's this. That Daniel was a man who lived his time or his life here on earth 180 degrees from the ordinary. He personified the kind of life written of by the Apostle Paul centuries later when he wrote these words. And he said this to, Romans in, to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. And he said this, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you would know what the will of God is, and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Daniel was a man who didn't go with the flow. He was a man of great insight, great confidence, great strength, because he knew in whom he believed, and he knew that he was able to keep that which he has delivered unto him against the day of judgment. Daniel was a man whose mind was firmly entrenched in the word of God and not in this world. He was a a man that understood the mind of God. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend who's going through some difficult times, the manure's piling up deep. His wife chose to leave him for another guy and left him with his two small children. And he said, you know, as I've gone through all of this struggle and I've looked at it, he goes, you know, I've realized how, how, how close it is sometimes to think as God wants us to think by his, through his word and to think the, world, the way the world wants us to think by the philosophies of the world around us. And as we discussed it a little further, I began to realize, you know what, there's only one letter difference between world and and, uh, word, and that's what? The letter L. And I walked away from that conversation convinced of this. That that letter L stands for loser. It's a loser. It is a loser to buy into the philosophies of this world. Because this world is in opposition to the things of God. But the word of God gives us complete access to the mind of God to the plans of God, to the hopes of man that are based firmly upon what God has to say in in His Word. Don't buy into what this world has to offer. But choose to believe what God says in His Word and you will live a life like Daniel that is 180 degrees from the ordinary. Thank God for His Word. Thank God for a servant like Daniel that we can learn much from him. Thank God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word. We look forward to what you have to teach us in the future about the days that are yet ahead in our future and what we can learn from that. God, we just thank you for this study in the book of Daniel. We thank you for Daniel, a servant of yours who found time and made time to spend time studying your word, spend time on his knees before you in prayer. And as a result of this fellowship that he had with you, he was a man who lived his life anything but ordinary. He was a man who was not conformed to this world, but was transformed by the renewing of his mind. And he understood that the will of God was good and acceptable and perfect. And we just love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.